Should healthy young people be propping up private health insurance for older generations? With a mass exodus of young people from private health insurance and premiums on the rise, how do we make private health insurance sustainable? Those are the questions for today's Grattan podcast. I'm your host, Kat Clay, and I'm here with health expert Stephen Duckett to talk about the second report in his series on saving private health. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Kat. The other week you outlined a plan to save $2 billion through reforming the private hospital system in the first report on saving private health. The second report is on how to make private health insurance viable. In the words of the report, private health insurance is the only product in Australia where government has intervened in the market to force people to take out a product consumers regard as unnecessary and for which a public alternative exists. You've said previously that private health insurance is in a death spiral. So what's the current situation and what happens if we don't take action? What's happening is that wages have been flat for the last decade in real terms, but private health insurance premiums have been going up way faster than inflation for, and have been for the last decade. So what's happening is family budgets are under pressure. They look around and say, what can we drop? Do we really need to have our health insurance? We haven't used it for the last couple of years or at all. And so they're dropping their insurance. So as younger and healthier people who don't use health services drop out of health insurance, the risk pool, the insurance pool is older and sicker. So prices go up again. So more young and healthy people drop out. And this spiral continues with younger people dropping out and older people staying in. When we looked at the data, every age group under 65 is dropping health insurance. Every age group over 65 is keeping their insurance. We've done the projections now, and this trend continues over the next decade or so. So younger people dropping out, people in the 65 to 69 year age group also starting to drop out. And the only people staying there are people over 70. So health insurance is in a really tight, difficult situation. So currently Australia has a system of community rating where everyone pays the same private health insurance premium regardless of age or health. Is this sustainable? So in fact, community rating has an inbuilt fatal flaw. The whole point of community rating is that everybody pays the same premium regardless of their health status, regardless of their age, regardless of everything. But what, what that means, and, and the, point of, the point of community rating is that it means that everybody can get access to, to health insurance because if we didn't have community rating, the prices that older people pay would be prohibitively high. And that's sort of the situation in New Zealand. So old 75-year-old plus, there's very few people are in health insurance there. So what the fatal flaw is that by definition, community rating is about a cross-subsidy within a health insurance fund. Essentially, we hope that younger and healthier people buy health insurance and they don't use as much as the premium would expect them to. And, and they, so they therefore cross-subsidise to older people. And, but the problem is the younger people say, hang on, this product is just not worth it. I'm not getting value for money, and they drop out. And that's the problem, that the more there is a cross-subsidy, the more younger people are going to drop out. 
So the report that's just come out uh, sets out a number of recommendations to reform private health insurance. And the first one that's quite striking is to deregulate the industry for under 55-year-olds, while those at 55 and over would pay the same premium. Talk us through this recommendation. The industry is incredibly overregulated. And one of these regulations is this community rating, which, as I said, has this fatal flaw. So what we've said is, can we move away from community rating? And, and you can sort of align your, array your policies about rating on a spectrum from pure community rating at one end to what's called risk rating at the other, where you, you uh, determine the premium based on the risk that you're going to use the product. And everybody is, is aware of risk rating. I mean, that's basically how your housing insurance is uh, determined. You, you pay based on... Uh, whether you live in an area where there's lots of burglaries and you're subject to fire and all those sorts of things. But in, in Australia, for health insurance, the premium is pretty close to the community rated end of the spectrum. Not quite there because we've got some discounts for younger people already, not very big ones, but they exist. And, and different age groups take out different sorts of products. So already the premium that younger people pay is a bit lower than, than older people pay. But what we're saying is we should move way further down towards risk rating. And what we're saying is let's look at people under 55, so hardly young people, but, but people under 55, and say what we really need to do if we're going to arrest this death spiral, if we're going to arrest the youth exodus from health insurance funds, is to actually say let us set the premium closer to the value of the product. So consumers will say, yeah, this is now value for money and I'm going to take out health insurance. So what we're saying is allow the health insurance funds to set whatever premiums they like for people under 55. And that will allow them to experiment, to develop different products and so on. But the only basis for, a, the, for discrimination will be on the basis of age. So essentially what we're recommending is age-based risk rating for people under 55. Because we're taking a deregulatory approach, we're also saying no health insurance rebate for these people either. So there's the government doesn't subsidise and the funds have to develop a, pr a product mix and a pricing strategy which uh, encourages young people into their product. Now, this will save government a lot of money, but it also means that the prices that younger people or people under 55 will pay will be lower than they are now. They'll be closer to the to value for money and the government will save a whole lot of money. So the, the young people will benefit, the government will save some money there, the health insurance funds have a, a possibility of surviving because we'll, I expect we'll stem the youth exodus. Then we said this, government saved all this money, we have just made health insurance unaffordable for older people because there's no longer a cross-subsidy within the fund. So what we then said was take all this money that used to be on premiums, private health insurance rebate for people under 55 and put it into the over 55 population. And by doing this, we can bring down the, the premium for older people. And essentially what we've said is we should still keep community rating for older people, that is people over 55, because 
If you don't, there's a huge difference in health service utilisation between a 56-year-old and an 86-year-old. So we still want to make health insurance affordable for the 86-year-old. So have a community-rated premium uh, for people over 55, which is heavily subsidised. Uh, and, and so all of the private health insurance rebate money goes into that subsidy. Now, when I say all of the private health insurance money, I, I'm talking about two different pots of money here. The first pot of money is the private hospital insurance rebate, which is used to subsidise the, the product we're talking about. The second, and, that, and that's about uh, $5 billion or so a year of, of subsidy. The second pot I'm talking about is the, uh, the, the so-called extras uh, insurance rebate, the ancillaries, it's, the technical term is general insurance, covers dental, physio and so on. And that's a bit more than a billion. So together, they're about six billion a year in subsidies. Um, and what we're saying is, take some of that general or, or ancillaries insurance money and put it into dental. We did a report earlier this year on dental care where we said we ought to be moving towards universal dental care and put the rest of the money into this private hospital insurance pot. So we, we poured all of that money into subsidising health insurance premiums for people over 55, and that brings them back down again. There'll be a little bit of an increase, but nowhere near as much of an increase as if we hadn't done something like this. So, Stephen, I want to go a little bit back to the private health insurance rebate that you've mentioned a little bit, um, because the report evaluates a lot of these carrot and stick measures, um, like the lifetime health cover, the rebate, and the Medicare levy surcharge. And while they look like good incentives on the surface, why aren't these as effective as they appear? So there are a number of issues we looked at, Kat. Um, and so we looked at the uh, private health insurance rebate, and there's been a fair bit of academic work on this. And economists talk of a, uh, have a term for this called elasticities. And elasticities are about uh, the extent to which if you change the price of a product, the demand for the product varies. And you learn about it in first year economics. And so there's been a lot of academic work which estimates the responsiveness of private health insurance to changes in subsidy arrangements. And by and large, there's been a range of estimates uh, in the 35 to 45-ish percent-ish mark. Um, but, and so what we looked at was all of that literature and basically the conclusion of all of the academic literature is if you took away the health insurance rebate, yes, there'd be an increase in price, effective price that consumers pay, and yes, many people would drop out of health insurance. However, many people would stay in health insurance. So it's not as if take away the rebate and everybody drops health insurance. And the, the question is, how many people are left in health insurance. And let's say it's somewhere between 20 or 30% are left in health insurance. The question then becomes, to what extent do they uh, use hospitals, uh, do they use public activity, or do they create a demand on the public system? And by and large, the conclusion of all of the academic literature is that the private health insurance rebate is not self-financing, that is, if you got rid of the private health insurance rebate, government would save money. And so that's a pretty clear conclusion. However, 
Most of those studies were done quite a while ago in quite different economic context. Most of the studies looked at the impact of increasing the subsidy. You know, one study just published last year, I think, looked at that they, the government changed the policy about 60, there was a bigger rebate for people over 65. And so they looked at, they, so they looked at did that change the proportion of the population over 65 who had health insurance? And the answer was it didn't. So looking at that sort of context. But we're now talking about taking away a rebate rather than increasing it. So would consumers respond the same? Uh, would consumers respond the same when their wages are flat rather than when their wages were increasing? And so we said there's some uncertainty about what the outcome would be if you took away the rebate. And if you got it wrong, you could have a big adverse impact on the public system. So we said, look, you've got to be pretty careful about this. So we don't think you should take a precipitate decision to get rid of the rebate. But on the other hand, there's no evidence that the rebate is value for money now, so it'd be crazy policy to try to actually increase the rebate. So we said, whatever you do, government, don't put, don't increase the rebate, but be really careful about chopping it out. So what we said is basically some of the existing policy should remain in place. So at the moment, the, in, the, the rebate is capped, the growth in the rebate is capped in line with the consumer price index. And so, you know, there are slow ways of, of capping it. The rebate's means tested. We're recommending continuing uh, means testing of a major component of the rebate. And so we're recommending policies which ease the industry transition rather than precipitate change. And we're recommending policies which keep the rebate but really restructure it so the rebate gets spent on the people who are most likely to use health services, that is, people who are older. So, Stephen, there's been a number of suggested changes to private health insurance in recent years, and you've called a lot of these zombie proposals. Why don't these zombies work? Well, Kat, these are proposals that get up and walk around and someone should, you know, put a stake in them or whatever you do to zombies to kill them and bury them and, and make sure they never come back again. I think it's a cricket bat. It's a cricket bat you use on the zombies, isn't mm. it? Anyway, well, that's what we should be doing. So we've got... Every now and again, everybody has a bright idea about what they should do with, uh, with the rebate and, and they're always essentially self-interested. And so uh, we had a proposal uh, which is called Medicare Select, which um, involves instead of 40% of the population having health insurance, um, 100% of the population will be forced to have health insurance. And guess who benefits from that? The health insurance funds. And is there any benefit that that's going to help anybody? No. But does it stop everybody saying, oh, look, I remember Medicare Select, let's propose that. And so we've got these proposals wandering around and we say get rid of them. I've done a, a, a separate um, video podcast, whatever you call those. A video. <laughs> a video on, um, on, the, on a couple of these zombie proposals just to, uh, you know, put my perspective on why they are completely useless. Um, but I think there are also other proposals that we looked at which aren't quite so useless, aren't quite so zombie, but each of them have some flaws. And basically what we said is when we were looking at the options, what are some of the criteria we might use to evaluate things? And the first thing we said is no increase in government subsidy. Uh, you know, I've 
talked a bit about the rebate, probably not being value for money, but be careful about withdrawing it. But we said, whatever you do, whatever your proposal is, no increase in, in government subsidy. The second thing we said was, look, you've got to protect people over 55, over 65, over 75. And so you've got to keep health insurance affordable for older people. You've got to worry about transition and discontinuity and policy. And so, you know, we, we had these criteria and we looked at some other proposals that have floated around. The Private Healthcare Association, for example, has uh, proposed that um, uh, there'd be a fringe benefit tax exemption for employers who subsidise or who support uh, private health insurance for younger people. Well, of course, that fails on the don't increase the public subsidy argument. And so, so we looked at those and basically in the end we said, well, if we really are to address the youth exodus, this sort of moving along the risk spectrum to a bit more risk rating was the only way that uh, we think in the longer term you're going to address some of these problems. So, Stephen, a contentious question. Whenever we talk about reforming the private health insurance industry, many people ask, why don't we get rid of private health insurance altogether and focus on the public health system? What do you say to that? The question is, why would you bother to get rid of the private hospital system? I mean, people, you know, some people value choice a lot and they think that they're you know, they, they like the idea of being able to go to a private hospital rather than a public hospital. Lots of people like to send their kids to private schools versus public schools and so on. So why not allow that sort of choice? And the second point is, as I said, there's some uncertainty about the private health insurance rebate. There's a, there's a significant subsidy here, you know, $6 billion or so uh, of the rebate itself and, and actually more when you take Medicare uh, funding into account as well. So... Yes, there is a big subsidy, but I think one of the issues is why would you stop doing it? And there are a couple of reasons why you might. Uh, it might impact adversely on the public system. We didn't look very much at that in this report. But I think a more fundamental question and a more interesting one is why on earth would you force people to take out health insurance? Why? And at the moment, uh, we've got this thing called the Medicare levy surcharge, which says that if you're over a certain income, 90000 for example, for a single person, uh, there's a tax penalty if you don't take out health insurance. So for a person on my income, health insurance is free because if I don't have health insurance, I'll pay more tax than the premium I'm paying. But what a strange product it is that people are forced to take it out, even if they don't think it's of value to them, and that you know, the product is in a sense so bad that people are saying, I don't want this product, but government is saying, we know better than you, you've got to take out this this product, otherwise we'll uh, have a big penalty on you. And I think this is really strange. So we've said over time you uh, should probably phase out the Medicare levy surcharge too. But as I said earlier, one of our criteria was, you know, the transition arrangements. Don't do anything suddenly because you've got to be have time to evaluate these changes, to evaluate what's happening, to make sure you have no significant impact on the public system. Just wrapping up, Stephen, after you've produced both of these reports, how would private health insurance and hospitals improve for consumers if all your recommendations were put into practice? So, Kat, our first report looked at the, the provider side, the hospitals, the doctors, and, and we made a number of recommendations which were about making the provider side more efficient and that would lead to 
uh, reductions in premiums, and also making the consumer experience better, getting a single bill so that they don't have all of these bills dribbling in over the years and over the you know, months after they've had their, had their procedure. And so a better consumer experience and a more efficient system. And this needs to be underpinned by a viable health insurance system. And when we step back and looked at the health insurance system as it stands now, we know it's not viable. The youth exodus is continuing. So what we said is we've got to do something about this if we're going to keep health insurance underpinning this private market and so we need to do a restructuring. For younger people, people under 55, they will get an absolute reduction in their premiums because of our uh, risk rating changes. For older people, they'll get either this, pay the same premium or possibly marginally more, but they'd pay even more if our proposals were not addressed. So it's a significant reshaping of the industry, but unless there is a reshaping, the industry is doomed. So I think my conclusion is essentially government has three options. It has what I call the ostrich option. You know, just put your head in the sand, hope it all goes away and uh, send your thoughts and prayers to the health insurance industry. The second option might be called the Oliver option. Put your hand out and ask, please, sir, give me some more. Now, Oliver Twist actually had an argument for, for why having some more was a good thing. But the, as we demonstrated with the private health insurance rebate, yeah, not much of an argument uh, for increasing any subsidy to this industry. And the third option is what we think is the, the only viable option. And that's essentially about alignment of incentives, about making sure the product is value for money for young people, making sure the dynamics of the industry work, making sure that the industry, that the, the red tape which is strangling the industry is uh, stripped away so that the, the industry is forced to compete on the basis of value, to compete and provide products that consumers want rather than uh, be mollycoddled, rather than um, have this learned helplessness where it relies on government to fix its problem. So what we're saying is we need to actually set in place the structures which will allow an efficient industry and one which has a chance of survival and one which actually is based on delivering value. So the product is such that people want to buy it rather than forced into it. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for your valuable insight into reforming private health so this will be our last interview podcast for the year. Before I go, let me wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. In the coming weeks, we'll be posting a couple of event recordings, including our picks for the Prime Minister's summer reading list, and we'll be back in the new year with more in-depth analysis of public policy issues. If you'd like to read the report we've been talking about or any of our past reports, visit our website at grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and Facebook Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this Grattan podcast, hit subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening. <laughs>